Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet's a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising, and we partner with businesses, organisations, trade unions, and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's podcast is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Who knew that using a different coloured pen could make a will invalid or that removing some staples means the document is no longer legally recognised? I did not uh, know that. Morris Blackburn's expert lawyers, on the other hand, do, uh, and they know all the important tips and uh, make creating a will super, super simple. Uh, simply complete an online form and they'll arrange a time to discuss your needs and prepare your will and store it at no extra cost. Search Morris Blackburn Lawyers Wills today. That's Morris Blackburn Lawyers Wills um, today to get started on your affordable lawyer written will. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which is out every Friday, that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day uh, and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're kind of definitely going, not kind of definitely, we are going abroad today because we are continuing with our wrap of uh, 2021 by debriefing the year of international politics uh, with a good friend of mine, uh, Hayden Monroe, who was the former campaign manager for Jacinda Ardern uh, in her historic landslide election victory uh, last year. So Hayden's going to come on the show today to uh, basically break down the year of politics uh, around the world. So we'll look at New Zealand, the US, UK, Canada, and talk a bit about um, what came out of the um, conference in Glasgow around climate change. Um, also, want to mention uh, a uh, since we uh, shot, shot to number one in the podcast uh, rankings uh, for news politics, uh, we've had a whole bunch of people write to us and sort of give us ratings and reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts. And I want to read out one today from Troy Fernandez. If you write something funny, I'm going to read it out. Uh, Troy says, "Great show. This pod is a must listen for left leaning political junkies. The guests are relevant, top caliber, articulate." and provides listeners with an insight into politics that many will never get an opportunity to hear or see. Great to see a pod with focus on Australian political content uh, with occasional international guests. Um, Stephen does uh, a really good job of understanding his guests and knowing the right questions to ask. That's because I've got a really good producer. Um, unlike many other pods, a presenter uh, lets a guest talk and doesn't need to uh, everyone to know his or her opinions on everything, except for his rubbish sport teams. I highly rate this pod. Thank you, Troy, but I'm just going to take umbrage. My teams aren't rubbish. Six Super Bowls, four World Series, a Stanley Cup and an NBA t- championship. You can't be rubbish. I mean, that's not rubbish. That's, that's, just, that's just excellent. I mean, there's a parade in Boston basically every year these days. That's how cool it is. Anyway, but Troy, hey, thank you very much for leaving us. A wonderful, wonderful review. And uh, if you'd like to leave us a review uh, or give us um, your feedback, um, let us know um, either on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher. And for all the latest updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Monday afternoon in uh, in Melbourne. Um, another Monday recording of a podcast. We're quite organised in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and joining me uh, as a part of our December wrap, um, as you know, that the start of the month we did a wrap on um, pop culture. Uh, last week we did a wrap on federal politics and now we're going overseas and we're going to do a wrap of international politics. And to help me do that uh, is the Public Relations Director for Capital, which is a New Zealand-based Government Relations and Comms Agency. They're based in Wellington, and uh, he's the former campaign director for Jacinda Ardern's successful landslide election victory in 2020. 
Um, but um, I know him better because he was the campaign manager for another incredibly successful but under-the-radar win in winning the mayoral election in Wellington in 2016. Hayden Munro, welcome to Socially Democratic. And also, oh, sorry, should I say, kia ora. And welcome to Social Sure. Thank you so much for having me along. Great to talk to you. Now, we've been meaning to actually catch up uh, and talk about politics and campaigns and stuff for a while on the podcast. So I'm super wrapped that you've made time in your busy schedule before you um, hit the Christmas uh, festive uh, period to just do a bit of rap about uh, politics and around the world. And I want to start in your own home country, New Zealand. Um, and get a sense about, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that have been going on, obviously, obviously in New Zealand politically and COVID and all that kind of stuff. And from an Australian perspective, it looks like things have been going or been handled very well by the government. Um, but I'd, I'd be super interested to get an insight from you about how how has um, COVID been and the experience been for Kiwis and where are we up to right now um, in terms of, you know, restrictions and lockdowns and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so we're at a really interesting moment in New Zealand's uh, journey on the pandemic. So we're we're two weeks now into what's called the the COVID protection framework, uh, or more colloquially, the traffic light system. So this is um, a. Since COVID first started, New Zealand had been um, operating under the alert levels system, which was kind of our our version of of lockdowns. Um, Level alert level four was kind of a a total nationwide lockdown. Obviously, the, the you know New Zealand government has done a very good job through through the pandemic. We have some of the lowest uh, COVID rates in the world, you know the lowest death rates. Um, our economies um, you know bounce back really strongly. Uh, so the alert level system was really seen as as a real success. Uh, but but with with Delta um, has, has come the fact that you know this. This variant is a bit of a game changer. We haven't been able to eliminate Delta. We keep case numbers very low, but we haven't been able to completely get rid of it. So the government has moved to to this traffic light system, which is in recognition of the fact that our vaccine rates are now very high. So I think we're, we're well over 90% now for first dose. So given that people are now much better protected, the government has moved us into uh, a new framework where uh, we have vaccine passes or vaccine passports, um, and at, at the uh, orange and red levels, which is where most of the country is, uh, vaccine passports are really um, required for hospitality, for major events, and so on. So um, the good news is that lockdowns are a, a thing of the past. What's been really hard about this year, though, is that um, Auckland, our, our biggest city, has spent a lot of time in lockdown this year um, after after Delta um, and, a, and a pretty significant outbreak there. Um, but at the same time, you know, when, when I think when most New Zealanders look, you know, certainly across the ditch or to the UK or, or other places, I think people are still feeling pretty good um, about the the overall response. Like like I said, you know, I, I, it's around 44 people have died. Um, which compared to compared to overseas is is pretty amazing. Our unemployment rate is only three point four percent, so the economy has been has been holding up really well. Um, I think politically, though, it has been harder for the government. Um, the, the most recent poll in his Labour in the early forties that's down from the the fifty point zero one percent that they received in the twenty twenty election. I think there's a couple of things that drive in that. Fundamentally, as difficult as twenty twenty was. It was at least simple. The message to the public was stay home, save lives. And that eliminated COVID. And we had very long periods with no restrictions and no cases. Um, The traffic light system is more complex, right? It's not as easy. You have to wear your mask. You have to remember to to scan in and to use these passports. And I think there are a a lot of of Labor's core supporters who were very attached to the elimination strategy and kind of regret and and are upset that we we were never never able to, to, um, to eliminate Delta. And then there will also be those people who, um, who, just like people around the world, want the government to move faster at lowering restrictions. So I think there's been a little bit more kind of unhappiness and the government's found it harder to please as large a percentage of the of the population. Uh, that being said, you know, when I certainly when I look across the Tasman at the um, at the Australian government federally who are, you know, trailing pretty significantly now in the polls. Um, if you look at, at the US, if you look at the UK, those those governments are really taking a bit of a battering over Delta, um, New Zealand, New Zealand's government 
I think, in recognition of the the strong response, their polling's holding up pretty pretty well. Um, and then the the kind of biggest political news here recently is that the opposition have had a change in leader. So you know, the National Party here in New Zealand, the Conservative opposition, has had a really difficult time. Um, with COVID, they haven't been able to um, to capitalise on it in the way that that some oppositions overseas have. They had a very unpopular leader in Judith Collins and a lot of um, internal division in their caucus. Uh, that that um, came to a climax a few weeks ago when Judith Collins uh, demoted Simon Bridges, who was seen as her most likely challenger. She demoted him um, over inappropriate comments that he made five years ago, uh, and that that was hand what was dealt with, and he was told off by the the then Deputy Prime Minister Bill English at the time, and and her kind of unearthing these these um, you know old comments that he'd apologised for at the time and demoting him on the basis of it was seen as as a step too far by her caucus, and she was um, she she lost a, a motion of no confidence. The National Party then had a week um, of of what was essentially a, a leadership campaign between Simon Bridges and Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand and protege of uh, former Prime Minister Sir John Key. Uh, Luxon won that contest, and uh, his messaging in the, the uh, you know, 14 days or so since he took over has been the National Party is back. You know, we are putting the division and um, drama of the last few years behind us, and he's very much, um, you know, uh, the media is calling him John Key 2.0. He, he's, he's John Key's protege. He's got a very successful business career, and it looks like he'll be bringing the National Party back towards trying to compete for the centre ground of, of middle New Zealand in a way that they haven't in the last four years. So, yeah, it's a very interesting time in New Zealand politics, you know, heading into, a, heading into the summer, um, you know, very low case rates, but Obviously, big concerns about you know what will happen could happen with different variants. What will happen on the fifteenth of December, just a few days from now, when Auckland is who have who have not been able to travel around the rest of the country are able to in a few days, uh, and at the same time, an opposition that's really looking to sort themselves out after a, a period of dysfunction. So it's an exciting time to be a political junkie in New Zealand. It's um. It's interesting as an observer from overseas, albeit only three hours away, um, about New Zealand politics and and the feeling and um, and uh, love, I guess we have for your leader, Jacinda, or the late Labor leader, Jacinda Ardern. Funnily enough, before we recorded today's episode, I was at our cafe below where I work, just waiting for my um, sandwich to arrive, and there was a guy on the phone next to me, and he was a Kiwi. And I think he was talking to an Australian and their conversation was about New Zealand politics. And he was saying that, he said, look, you know, my family are, are Labor. Uh, my mum has always voted Labor, um, but they're, they're disappointed in Jacinda. Um, they're a little bit pissed off. Um, and uh, he said that, look, everyone outside of New Zealand thinks Jacinda's the bee's knees, but it's a different experience in New Zealand. Uh, my sandwich arrived before I could eavesdrop any more on this conversation. But he was talking about, uh, he said that, um, uh, he said that people think that Jacinda has stuffed up the response to COVID in 2021. But he said, I think that's unfair because it's challenging anyway. And we've seen governments all around the world not know how to deal with this particular, the, 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 the Delta variant. Um, and you can thank the New South Wales um, Liberal government for giving that to you guys. Um, let's not let, let that one go by without giving a bit of a swipe. Um, and so he was kind of defending her. But as I was walking out the door, his last sentence was, but I'll probably vote national at the next election. So I was, you know, this is only one person, right? This obviously isn't, this is a pretty small sample size and not a focus group. But I just want to get your sense of how is Jacinda's standing in the electorate now, do you think, after the 2020 election win, which you guys just absolutely monstered it in? Like it was such a great result. Like that's... That's up there, top five greatest social democratic uh, election campaigns that I've ever seen and, and in terms of results. So coming off that high, going into, you know, 2022, how was Jacinda being felt uh, amongst the community, uh, particularly the people that uh, that got her over the line? Where, what what, what are yeah. your thoughts on her? 
Yeah, so look, in terms of um, in terms of her polling, her personal preferred prime minister ratings are still really good, although no longer stratospheric. I think would be the the best way to say it. So, um, I'm just trying to think of the most the most recent uh, Colmar Brunton, the the big TV one poll. You know, still still had her streets ahead of of any other potential prime minister. Um, her she is still significantly net favourable. Um, and still, you know, much. I, I, I th- I've got this right off from memory. She's, she's, you know, still um, much more uh, popular. Her approval rating, sorry, her approval rating is much higher than than her disapproval rating. I think, as I said, though, you know, there have been um, dealing with Delta has just been a lot harder than than previously, and. Um, I think there were a lot of people who had never voted Labour in their lives who voted for us in, in 2020. And, um, yeah, on, on current polling, they're not all staying there. And I, I think probably um, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. I think also, though, part of um, what a lot of, of political leaders are seeing around the world at the moment is that there is something about just having to front bad news all the time as well that, um, I, you know, I, I've, I have friends who, um, who live in, in Melbourne as well. And my understanding is that, you know, Daniel Andrews, who was also, you know, has, has had periods of extreme popularity uh, due to a, a you know, much more successful COVID response than, um, than other places, uh, just him fronting bad news every day. You know, there's something about the fact that every time people see you on TV, you're there to tell them that something's gone wrong. That becomes, I think, a little bit a little bit harder to sustain that that kind of stratospheric popularity. At, at the same time, though, look, as I say, some of the lowest case numbers in the world, lowest death numbers, the economy's performed incredibly well. It, um, you know, we'll we'll see what happens with Delta, but 3.4% unemployment in the middle of a global pandemic is is pretty strong. Um, I, th- I think the other thing on on the people who um, th- that Labor won over in 2020, you know. Uh, having sat in focus groups during that campaign, a lot of those people considered themselves to be loaning their vote to Labor to get through the crisis. So I think there are probably a fair number of, of um, long-time National Party voters who, when they voted for us in 2020, did so knowing or thinking that it would be the last time that they ever did it. Mm. So, um, you know, that being said, uh, the most the most recent polls still have, have Labor performing at a higher level than Helen Clark ever achieved in any of her um, her victories. So you know, it's some, sometimes I think it's important to look at the you know the the long the kind of long term trends. Uh, and on any of those trends, you'd have to say that Ardern, even even in the middle of dealing with with Delta, um, still rates very highly against some of the most successful prime ministers of the modern era. It's funny when you say that when uh, coming off this stratospheric uh, level of approval or support in the electorate uh, and then coming down to something that's not as stratospheric but it's still like 60 points or something It's just, you know, and the media try and spin it as, you know, the shine has come off or the uh, – there's been saying this about Daniel Andrews, you know, like during the – during uh, both uh, 2020 and 2021, saying, you know, the gloss has come off Daniel Andrews' leadership. People are finally seeing him for who he is. His approval rating is only 64% now. You're like, well, okay, it was up around 80 there a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, but they would report as a drop of 15 points against Daniel Andrews, even though it's still probably um, the last poll showed us that we'd, there'd be a swing to Labor at the next election. So, you know, I think also, you know, we are um, expect, we haven't yet had a series of public polls since Christopher Luxon took over. I think we are expecting a real bump for national there. Um, their vote has, has significantly slipped to act, which is the, the kind of libertarian right wing party to, to nationals. Right. Um, they've had a very good 2021 David Seymour, who's their leader, um, has been very effective as an opposition um, MP. You know, to the extent um, Act's media team is famous now for getting reaction to government announcements out faster than national and in, in you know with more colourful quotes and and being much more um, available to the media. So I think what what we're expecting to see is is a lot of those disaffected national voters who moved to Act moving back under Luxon, um, and and you'd expect to see some of those those people who, as I say. You know, we're loaning Labor their vote in recognition of COVID, um, maybe moving home, but um, you know, the 
in New Zealand, it's MMP, so you have to look at the blocks, not just you know two party preferred. The the left block is still you know pretty comfortably in the the high forties, if not the low fifties. So as as you say, things things that 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 kind of get reported as as um, you know big drops. But on the MMP basis, I think I think things are still pretty good. And, and again, I do think that if you take a step, kind of a step back from the the kind of ups and downs of the polls. This government has an incredibly strong record to run on in in twenty twenty three. You know, um, as well as the fact that they're, they're making all these slides, um, all these all this progress on COVID, doing such a good job with the pandemic. We're also seeing um, record levels of new home consenting. So that's been a that's been a really long term problem across both parties. Governments of both parties have really struggled to get the number of new homes being built in New Zealand up. That's happening. Um, as I say, unemployment's very low. Uh, you know, 2022 will not be without its economic challenges. Inflation um, is a big one, especially with it being so hard for a country that's at the bottom of global supply lines. That can be a real, a real challenge with with COVID making um, global shipping much harder. But I think I think we feel that the the economy is in a very strong space. Grant Robertson, who is the finance minister, um, has has performed really well and and. Um, his numbers, and according to to polling that I've seen, he's also kind of stratospherically net positive. Mm. So that that's really encouraging. Anytime a, a Labor government has a finance minister who's you know well respected by the business community, seen as economically credible by the public, that's a real advantage. And I think that'll be th- those things. The strong COVID response, strong strong economy, should be enduring beyond the you know the um, kind of grumpiness that's out there about Delta. What's been the experience on, in communities with uh, with COVID, um, particularly the the Delta variant? Um, you know, in, if I can look at New South, New South Wales and Victoria um, during the various lockdowns that the states have gone through and the cities have gone through, it's really impacted on um, migrant communities, um, communities that um, English is their second language. Um, you know, out of suburb, like out of suburban people working the casualised workforce. Um, how has that experience been for New Zealanders? Where have we really found COVID has sort of ripped through communities? Yeah, I think if you look at um, what was uh, so hard about the Delta outbreak in Auckland um, is that it was in um, uh, in um, communities, especially in South Auckland, that that are um, you know lower income, um, are more likely to live in overcrowded housing. Um, you know, one of the one of the most significant clusters was a, a, around a church in South Auckland, um, and and you know that is that um, a lot of the people there are, are, are people who worked, so even under you know essential workers who were still still having to go in under um, the alert level four and, and certainly under alert level three. So that's been that's been a real challenge. I think there's a couple of things. So the first is though is that um, the the last year has been a real um, kind of tale of two halves in terms of. Um, where you were in the country really dictated your experience of COVID. Mm. You know, Auckland really carried the load for the rest of the country. They spent a long time uh, in lockdown, um, and that is that is really hard, right? Especially, you know, we talk about this a lot, but especially for families of young kids, right? That's a really challenging. People that still have to work, or or, um, or people who have to work from home with young kids, is really hard. Um, that being said, you know, the South Island went for well over three hundred days. With no cases at all anywhere in the South Island, so um, you know for them, uh, large parts of the year life was was relatively normal. Um, in terms of um, uh, vaccine rates, we, we are seeing Auckland has really really strong vaccine coverage. There are, however, still bits of the, the country. Um, uh, especially in, in Northland and in, in parts um, of, of the east coast of the North Island where um, it is taking longer to get those vaccine rates up. And, and there's real, as as we reopen for the summer, I think there's um, real concern in parts of those communities about people who are unvaccinated, especially from Auckland, travelling into, into places where, uh, where vaccine rates are really low. So yeah, it has, a, a lot of this has to do with, you know, income and class and, and um, geography. What about urgency? I mean, does that play into it as well? I think I've noticed that you know Victoria and New South Wales really kind of got to those vaccine goals quite quickly. One, um, it was never an issue of supply; it was an 
um, it was an argument. Sorry, sorry, I said the other way around. It was always an issue of supply. The federal government didn't get enough vaccines to then provide to the states to put in arms, but there was an urgency. People were like, well, shit, if we, the only way we're going to get out of this outbreak or overcome this um, outbreak is through jabs. We'll get it done. Whereas you look at the vaccination rates from other states where they weren't in as severe a lockdowns or weren't in lockdowns at all, life was kind of cruisy, right? What's going on in parts of New Zealand where the vaccination rates are a little lagging a little bit? Is it be, is it lack, lack of access or is it urgency or, or what's... No, so, so I mean, New, Zealand, New Zealand's had a, a vaccine rollout that I think um, everyone would cover it started slower than the government wanted. Um, the government, though, made a decision to go all in on Pfizer so we, we didn't have, I think Australia had AstraZeneca as an option much earlier. Um, New Zealand decided Pfizer was, was the, the best performing vaccine and, and was the way to go. And that did put uh, put us a little bit at the mercy of, of Pfizer's supply schedule. Um, uh, that being said, I, th- I think it is probably a relatively similar um, uh, experience where our rates of vaccination really increased once Delta arrived mm-hmm. and, and parts of the country um, you know, were, were in lockdown for a long period of time. Um, the, a, a bit like everywhere, you know, the, the communities that are still not vaccinated are, are predominantly Māori, they're predominantly lower income, um, and, and that, th- there's also in places where you know, there's uh, lower levels of, of trust in the state Right, and that's that's often, and in, in, in a lot of those communities, that's often with with good reason mm. with, with the, the history of those communities. And um, that that being said, you know, some of the, um, the it, it's very rare to get ninety four percent of New Zealanders to agree on anything, right? Like, um, I, I think probably ninety four percent of us support the All Blacks, but that's probably the only other thing in, <laughs> in our society that's as, as unifying, right? And even then, even then, I'm, I, you might get to ninety two or ninety three. We've got it, you know. Um, but so, so the fact that that we are having those very high rates of vaccination um, ha- has been, I think, a, a, a quite impressive, and it does it does give the government more choices and how uh, more options and more choices in, in terms of how they um, look to respond to future outbreaks, and that's really positive. Yep. Let's uh, leave your lovely country and get on an aeroplane and fly to uh, the United States of America and do a bit of a wrap up of U.S. politics. And you know, if we think back to how the year started. Uh, January, January 6th was the insurrection on the Capitol. Um, and even as I still say this out aloud today, I still find it hard to believe that that actually happened. Um, and, you know, for I, I want to get your thoughts, but f- between January 6th and Inauguration Day, I was locked into US politics and checking Twitter before I went to bed and, che- and checking it when I first wake, woke up just to make sure that shit hadn't gone completely to you know to the crap house right because i just genuinely didn't i we i thought we're in this moment of flux where anything could happen um thinking back to that moment what were your impressions um observing from overseas about what was going on in us so um so kind of a a, uh, odd thing but my wedding day was the day that the capital riot happened uh, and my my wife and I had a lovely wedding venue uh, on a on a cliff above the ocean, uh, about forty five minutes drive out of Wellington, that does not get cell phone reception. So from about from about two o'clock, uh, I had to step out of my compulsive checking of Twitter to go get married. Yeah. So um, it was uh, yeah. So so I, I had a particularly unique experience of watching that. Look, I, I think um, I think it's 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 pretty obvious if you if you look back over the the year um there are real concerns about democratic backsliding in the states right there's a a, um, absolutely kind of classic case of um of how authoritarian um sorry how democratic norms are eroded by by authoritarian parties and i think the u.s republican party is now almost unashamedly a an authoritarian party they are they are at an institutional level, I think, against majoritarian rule, um, and and you you see that in the um, the refusal to accept what was pretty clearly a legitimate democratic victory um, by by the Democrats, um, and, and and nothing that I've seen since then suggests to me that that some version of that won't happen again mm. the next time the Republicans lose an election, and that's very dangerous because it is unfair to expect one party to always win 
and when you have one party that is is um, is committed to to democracy and the other who is increasingly authoritarian, that is a, a very scary place. I, I think the other thing that that is interesting about um, American politics in particular is that they do have this history of of the party in the White House getting absolutely smashed in the midterms and. Um, you know, I think, what, 1934, 1998, 2002 are like the only times that doesn't happen. So the, the Democrats, I think, are really up against that. And that's very, very concerning um, with the state the Republican Party has been in. You know, Biden famously talked about, and actually Obama did as well in his first term, that the Republicans needed to lose so that the fever would break. You know, this idea that they'd kind of de-radicalise um, and act like you expect political parties to act when they lose elections um, you know, reflect on on themselves and, and move back towards the centre. That hasn't happened. In fact, losing seems to to further radicalise them. Right. Um, I might come back to this point a lot over over this, but um, as a as a Kiwi, one thing that I am very grateful for is our proportional representation system here in New Zealand. I'm a big big believer that every vote has to count the same, and that when you do and you allow the the people who can pull a coalition of a majority of voters together and then you you let them govern and then they face another election, that's a that's a really good way to run a country. And I think you see that in, in um, you know, our success at, at tackling COVID compared to many other countries. Um, and I, I really worry that the Democrats um, have that they have not been able to move on some of those structural rules of the game things that I think reward the type of authoritarianism that they see from Republicans. So I think that'll be a big a big feature of the next three years. Um, and then and then looking at out past that, you know, the, the Senate and House map for the next decade is really hard for the Democrats. So they're, they're facing a, a you know a really potentially long and 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 really um, difficult period of time. I think I understand where Biden's coming from in terms of his agenda, in terms of his policy agenda. He wants to focus on that. He doesn't want to be talking about the the rules of engagement, as you've put it. Yeah. Um, he wants to be talking about um, creating jobs for Americans and American families and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a good central plank for any social democratic um, party and leader. But to your point, you can't create legislative change if you don't control the chambers. And you're right, all things point to a midterm in 12 months from now, in which the Democrats lose both control of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and then you're back to square one again, really. You control one branch of the government, but you can't do much with it. And the Republicans are going to be ruthless, as they always are. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like this moment right now where you feel like saying to Biden, you know, brother, you are on the clock. You've got yeah. less than 12 months to fundamentally alter the way that your democracy works. Otherwise... You're going to get belted. I mean, if you're in that position, you're advising Biden. What do you say to him? How do you? How do yeah, you try? So, and- look, I think, I think, and again, I'm I'm speaking from a particular context in New Zealand where uh, this is kind of our our political history, which is that in the 80s and 90s, both of our largest political parties engaged in some really radical new right reforms. And in both cases, it was uh, in explicitly counter to what they had run on. So the, the 1980s Labor government in New Zealand, uh, famously under Rogernomics, um, uh, you know, we, we were essentially Thatcherites as a government for uh, on economics during that period, um, despite running as a socially democratic party. And then the, the Conservative National Party ran a, a campaign in 1990 promising a return to a decent society and that they were going to put a stop to this. And then they actually ramped things up. And the New Zealand public um, voted to change the electoral system in in explicit rejection of of that type of kind of radicalism. Uh, And since then, New Zealand politics has moderated. It has been very civil. It is, you know, we... New Zealanders, I think, look on that with pride. And so I'm coming from a place where I've seen that changing the rules of the game is a, is ha- and, and changing them explicitly to require governments to win the support of a majority of the public, an actual, you know, a, a majority of votes cast is a powerful moderating influence um, against against kind of the radicalism that we, we see overseas. And um, in, 
if I was talking to Biden, the point I would make is that while, yes, your policy agenda is in the context of a competitive election, probably the right thing to do, you are not just facing a, an opposition party who is looking to beat you through standard democratic elections. You are The US is, is kind of on this precipice of um, how do you grapple in a, in a two-party system where major, majorities of, of the popular vote are not needed, they're not needed to, to hold the Senate, for example, that, that, that Senate has a, a real um, bias towards Republicans, they, they can, can win the Senate without getting even close to a majority of, of votes cast. Um, yeah, I, I think to, to, to run a standard kind of political campaign uh, up against all of those factors is kind of naive, and the rules of the game really matter. And the, the bad outcome for the Democrats is that they use their two years to pass, you know, maybe they get as far as passing the um, Biden's Build Back Better plan, and it is, you know, it is one of the great progressive reforms, but th that those two years are, are really the end for a long period of time. And, um, you know, a, a really empowered Republican Party that, not that long ago, was able to win unified control of government in 2016, and, and the, um, these things do happen, um, could, could do enormous damage to America's social fabric and democracy. Um, at the same time, though, you know, the Biden has to operate within the system that he has to operate in, and they've only got 50 votes in the, in the Senate, and, you know, um, Manchin's showing no sign of wanting to grapple with any of these issues, right? So that, that just makes it very, very hard. Um, one, one, the only thing that I, I think gets missed a lot in this, though, and this is something from the New Zealand experience, is that the the campaign for MNP and the campaign to change the, um, change the rules here in New Zealand did not come uh, just from one party. Right, it was a genuine. Um, someone's actually uh, referred to it almost as our Brexit moment uh, stuff. One of our big newspapers did an excellent um, series on this, um, and it was it was in, in the sense of of kind of rejecting a, a bipartisan what was then a, a bipartisan consensus around radical new right policies. It was a genuine um, democratic uprising to to assert that we wanted a more democratic system, um, and and I think if I was if I was an organizer in the US. And I was trying to decide you know, what issues most needed my attention, and I was looking to build um, civil society groups to to campaign for change. I'd be really looking at those rules of the game. I mean, we do see a, a lot of that work being done. It doesn't really get reported on. It's pretty kind of yeah. niche sort of stuff, right? But there are yeah. a lot of um, you know community organising groups that are doing that work. We you can see some states do have really good strong voting processes now but it's yeah. just not happening in those critical states that where yeah. governments won and lost well uh, if you look at if you look at um the work that someone like stacy abrams has been doing for, in georgia for example that i think that just shows how important and, and how you really can make a huge difference doing that kind of of grassroots organizing that you always talk about right so yeah but, it, but it's a, the the depressing part is what's happening is in states like georgia north carolina Arizona, Texas, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, where they control state houses. Republicans yeah. are bringing in new electoral laws that yeah. make sure whatever happened in the count in 2020 doesn't happen uh, in yeah. 2020. That's, that's exactly the, the type of thing I'm, I'm talking about, right? Where once again, you kind of see Democrats acting as if it, this was just a normal election and Republicans trying to... Um, trying to screw the board and it's it's you know if you're if two people are playing monopoly and, and one person's you know faithfully going around the board and the other person's nicking out of, straight out of the bank whenever they can that's if you pretend that's a, a normal game it's not that was me i was <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if i could just steal that money i'd probably win um anyway okay let's uh let's go across uh the atlantic and to the UK and talk about uh, politics over there. The year started with the May elections, which was kind of the first test for the new Labour leader, Keir Starmer. Um, Labour lost 
Hartlepool, there was a whole bunch of uh, local council elections, which are pretty significant in UK politics, um, less so here in Australia. Um, Scotland uh, stuck with the SNP again. I spent most of my night actually just watching BBC Scotland to see how Labor would go there, but it um, wasn't, a, wasn't a great night for Labor in north of Hadrian's Wall. Strong results for uh, the Labor Party in Wales, again, which is great. Um, so not a great start to the year, but then July saw that by-election in Batley and Spen. I love the names of the constituencies in the UK. They're fantastic. Um, Labor's Kim uh, Ledbetter um, held the seat for Labor with a reduced majority, but was seen as a, a great result for Labor because I think the polls suggested that Labor were going to lose, but she held out. She's the sister of the former Labor MP that was murdered um, by some right-wing nutjobs. I think I could be wrong about that, but she certainly is related. So that was also, a, there was a nice moral victory to that result mm-hmm. for um, for Kim. Um, your reflections on the results um, through 2021 and your feeling about the Labor's chances going forward under this new leadership? Yeah, so look, I think the first thing is if, if you take a step back, um, 2019 was, was so devastating for UK Labor um, and it didn't. Um, it was also the. It was so. It was a really bad result. But it was also the the kind of um, the climax of a lot of really um, difficult internal battles that they have to have. And so Starmer, I've heard him talk about this before. They've got a really big hill to climb before the next election. They, they they're starting from a, a a long way behind. Not only in terms of seats, but in terms of the work that you have to do um, as an opposition to to build a credible path back to government. Um, and Boris Johnson, you know, although he is a pretty morally repugnant individual and and pretty transparently terrible at governing, um, I think people often underestimate how much of just an exceptional politician he is. Mm. If you think back to the the situation that the UK Conservative Party found themselves in a few years ago, um, it, it's quite similar to other to centre right parties around the world, where you are seeing that the kind of more radical anti-immigrant kind of they had they had UKIP and and um, uh, Nigel Farage and the whole Brexit movement eating their right flank, and and um, uh, they were losing centre voters over austerity. Boris has almost single-handedly fixed that for them, right? He's now they now occupy a, a huge swath of the political ground in the UK. And anyone who thinks that, you know, anyone that mistakes that guy for a clown, mm. I think is is making a huge mistake. Um, that that being said, look, things are starting to look up. Um, Boris's personal behaviour and and more more so the the kind of culture of complete disdain for ordinary people, I think has, has found its, its perfect symbolism in the recent scandal about the um, Christmas party at number 10 that had happened while, while you know, millions of Britons were following the rules and not seeing their family for Christmas. Um, and then to have video of Boris's staff laughing about that mm. come out, I, I think speaks to that kind of Tory de- derision for everyone else. That coming off the back of, of a real scandal around... Um, UK Conservative MPs lobbying for money for clients while being MPs, um, I think speaks to some of that Tory sleaze from the 1990s. So, so the, you know, the UK Conservative Party is in trouble. Um, that being said, you know, UK Labor has a really long way to go. I, I always say that when when the public votes a party out after a long period in government, and UK Labor's last period in government was, uh, you know, the longest uh, in a very long time, if not ever, when, when they vote you out of government, they're really they're sending you to the sin bin. They're, they're sending you to wander in the desert, and they want you to come back having sorted yourself out, coming back unified, coming back with a mission, a sense of of a project, uh, you know, a vision for, for national renewal. Um, and, and you have to find a leader that, that can inspire your base and persuade the middle. And I think the job for progressive politicians is always to reassure middle ground voters in, in ways that conservative parties just don't have to do. Um, and I think that's the job that UK Labor has to do. And, um, you know, Starmer certainly seems to get that that's the challenge. But as I say, they, they start a long way behind. And I think part of the, the, the challenge for, for UK Labor they've never really resolved the kind of Blair versus Corbyn ideological rift. And my sense is that for them to retake government, 
they're going to need to be able to find and voice a credible new socially democratic um, uh, positioning and, and vision for the country that that is um, is socially democratic in, in kind of the best sense of the word. And, and Starmer, I think, is still trying to trying to piece that together. Um, so it's it's a it's a really interesting time at the moment. Boris, you know, does appear to be as people thought he would, getting in his own way because of the the sleaze and the chaos. So you know, Labour has the opportunity. It's just can they can they be positive? Can they be unified? And can Starmer kind of find that other gear that will allow him to to um, really connect uh, as a potential future prime minister? When I think of uh, Labor governments that have been in power for a number of years and then uh, get sent to the opposition benches and have to go through that experience that you have just so articulately put, it's not easy um, at yeah. all um, because, you know, you're right, you've got to go back and go, all right, um, particularly say we think about Australian Labor, and I don't think we've ever really completely grappled um, how to have dealt with the success of the Hawke-Keating era because it was such transformational reform that we did. We, you know, modernised the Australian economy. We did so much. Um, we've co- we've st- we still sort of are searching around trying to work out what what are we about at a national level even to today. I think I don't think we've ever kind of nailed that. So it's not easy. And we've had some great leaders over that period here in Australia um, try to help us do that, good people. Um in Britain to go through those growing, well, I won't call them growing pains, it's more like a, to, to reflect and evaluate. Drinking pains. Yeah, exactly. Reflect, evaluate, and then reset and then go again is tough enough. But when you put the hands of your movement, when you put the, 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 the running of this movement, this political movement in the hands of a uh, anti-European, anti-Semitic, Stalinist trot who actually really I don't think is a Labor person um, is just and, and caused so much chaos for the party that it's completely fucked them for a, a, the, 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 the journey back for Keir Starmer is huge and you can just see on social media like it's still there are huge wounds that are open right now there are still open shit fights between you know Labor what I would call traditional centrist Labor people who would probably be you know if they're, if they're in a faction of the Labor Party they'd be in the left or the right but they are Labor people with a whole bunch of people that joined the party that really actually aren't Labor people at all but think they are Labor now because they are Jeremy Corbyn's Labor and having these open shit fights about, you know, the purity of being Labor. And Keir Starmer, I can see, is just trying to say, okay, can we just, can we heal these wounds, get back to what we're trying to do, focus on the Tories uh, and, and win? And I just don't, I, I worry that this is going to drag on and probably sink his leadership um, that, that worst case scenario, and I'm a reasonably optimistic kind of person as well. So I just the, the dark side of me just worries about the future for Labor, and that we're still not out of it in the UK in, in this this sort of this shadow that was cast over this moment where in some crazy idea someone decided to sign Jeremy Corbyn's nomination form just to be a nice guy. So we had a contest for the Labor leadership, and look what it came back to haunt us. Yeah, I think um, one thing that one thing that I'd say to that is. Um, there is the the public is very very smart, right? The, it's a cliche: the voters are always right. But the voters have looked at the UK Labor Party the last few elections and said, "If you can't run yourselves, you can't run the country." At, at its most basic, it's before before you can engage me in a discussion about policies. I need to know that if I put you in number ten you're not going to rip yourselves apart within six weeks. And and that's the first thing. To, to the point, though, about, you know, can't we all just get together and take on the Tories? It is very possible, if you look back over uh, electoral history in the Anglosphere, Conservative parties can win because the left is a shambles or, or Labour governments lose elections, right? It is never really enough for the right to fall apart, for the left to govern. Progressives have to win government in ways that I'm not sure that, that 
centre-right parties do. If you look back over the history of the UK Labour Party since the war, it, it's Blair and Wilson, I think, mm. are the only people who have done it. It's really hard. And and part of that is institutional stuff around, I think that's a party that still needs to decide who they are. But part of that is also just um, accumulated brand damage from years of, of infighting and um, economic concern. You know, um, the, the UK Labour Party still hasn't figured out uh, who they are on economics, and that's just, you, you have to credibly do that. But I, I think that, that goes to my point around when UK Labour enters government from opposition, it has been around figures who can articulate a exciting programme of, of national renewal, right? You can think back to Blair's uh, New Dawn Has Broken, you know, that, that type of stuff. And to, to be able to do that credibly, you have to settle some of these internal debates and it can't be that you throw them aside for a while to train your guns on the Tory. You actually have to have answers to those things. And I think, you know, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of Corbyn either. I know you and I disagree a little bit about this, but I, I, I still, I actually think Tony Blair, um, uh, you don't get Corbyn without Blair. There's a reaction mm. from the membership against, um, against Iraq and the sense of kind of dishonesty. But I think, you know, my, my diagnosis is that the UK Labour Party has to find a way to credibly articulate a socially democratic vision that is that the party unifies behind. Um, and, and if they can't do that, it, 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 everything else needs to flow from that. You know, the, it, as you say, if they're, if they're stuck in this shit fight, no one's going to listen to anything else. So... Yeah, I think there's a, a long way to go. Before we um, leave uh, UK politics, certainly the most recent round of polling has suggested that things are looking up for Labor and Keir Starmer. I think there's been four or five polls now to come out in a row that have had Labor between four and six percentage points ahead of the Conservatives. I think this is the only time that a Labor leader has led whilst Boris Johnson has been leader or Prime Minister, for that matter, of the party. So that that sort of says to us that people are having a look at Labor and thinking, OK, this is something I could possibly do. So I think that maybe the next 12 months will be testing for Labor, but positive potentially. Potentially. I mean, the, there is a thing that, so the, the UK has such long terms that it's it's not at all uncommon for governments to trail for long periods. Uh, there's a, I, I, I don't have the citation on it, but I, there was a famous time where uh, Thatcher told Cameron that she was very worried that he wasn't doing enough because they weren't far enough behind against Ed Miliband. And, and, and um, famously, you know, Miliband looked like he was going to beat a one-term government, you know, um, and then the exit polling come, came out on the day and it turned out that Cameron was actually on track for, for a majority. Mm. So there is, you know, at this point in the cycle, uh, polling is really a referendum on the government. And, and people kind of move around. But as you get closer to an election, it becomes a choice between between two parties. And I guess the point I'm, I'm making is it's never enough just to assume that the Conservatives will mm. will hand you the election uh, and, and that progressives, you, you need to go out there with a, a serious case to make and a leader that, that connects with people, motivates your base, persuades and reassures the middle. And, and you need to do that in a way that um, is, is genuinely united. Let's head north to the uh, city of my parents, uh, Glasgow, um, and there was obviously a big uh, global conference on climate change uh, there uh, last month or the month before. We here in Australia have absolutely no idea what happened in terms of the discussions around climate because our Prime Minister went there and turned it into an absolute circus by uh, trying to awkwardly avoid the French Prime Minister the whole time and then actually sort of, you know, breaking all diplomatic norms and backrating against him to the Australian media and then lying about it. So do tell me, Hayden, what exactly did happen at Glasgow that had something to do with climate change? Because I missed all of this. Yeah, so um, I, I think you'd, you'd say that wasn't a shining example of Australian diplomacy, uh, would you? That's... Uh... Yeah, no, that. Um, but look, so look, um, Glasgow, I think is is being seen as a little bit of a missed opportunity in terms of the the global fight against climate change. Uh, you know, famously, the the, the agreement there was uh, watered down a, a little bit at the last minute when it came to coal generation. But um, I guess the the good, you know, not good news. It's climate change. There's no there's no real good news. But uh, analysis that I've seen from um, climate action tracker, I think, look, uh, seem to suggest that the agreement that came out of Glasgow, if everyone were to follow it to the letter of what they agreed, you'd be looking at about 2.4% warming by I think 2100. So 
you know, it's good we have an international agreement. It's good that these these things are still happening, but still a long way to go um, if we were going to hit any of the Paris goals, which was about limiting warming to, to 1.5. Who were the ones that jumped out of the uh, the card at the end? I remember reading some uh, kind of commentary about this, that there was a couple of the, I think was it was it India, that sort of kind of at the last minute said, no, we want changes to the, change, changes to the language, the certainty of this, because we want the Western countries do a bit more heavy lifting when it comes to this. We're getting punished. Yeah, and there's, this is this has been an ongoing thing across the, the various rounds of COP, right, which is that, you know, if you look at the history of emissions, it is true that the, um, you know, the, the richest Western countries are responsible for historically the, the vast bulk of using up the emissions budget available to the world. And it is galling for developing countries, especially, you know, China and India, who have millions and millions and millions of people in, in really abject poverty, who whose lives could be transformed through, you know, electricity being available, mm. um, but who are who are now told that that can't happen because someone else has, has used up all the emissions budget. That's a really tricky global geopolitics problem. Um, and I, I don't know that we're, we're there yet. Um, in terms of, of those those issues being able to be resolved. And I think that, that that was really the dynamic that was at play, is that the the um, you know the most developed Western countries weren't seen as as doing the heavy lifting that that um, developing countries thought they should because of the fact that they it's them that, that used up most of the budget in the first place. I'm not a policy guy by any stretch of the imagination, but I would assume then the next time you go around to avoid that kind of conflict or that argument being put up, and a, and a reasonable argument, as you put it, by developing countries like India and China is to say, well, then why don't we as a global community invest heavily in other forms of renewable energies in those particular countries to deliver those kinds of things that those countries need? Yeah, I also think that something, again, I, you know, I was a I was a press secretary in government, not a not a policy advisor, so you never listen to your press sec on policy. I, I'm just the guy that writes your press release for you. But, but one thing that I think um, developed countries who have been able to make a, a positive contribution um, have been able to do is around spend the money on research and development. So um, I, I've read really good analysis. Germany put a lot of money into subsidies for solar during the, I think, the, the you know, 2000s, 2010s. And that a lot of those those technology breakthroughs really helped to, to pull down the cost curve and it, it made solar um, a, a, you know, a much cheaper technology. Now, now solar's, solar's um, cheaper than, than gas in a lot of places, right? So I, I think it is, it is totally fair for, for the countries who developed and built so much wealth out of burning fossil fuels, not only could we look at, you know, uh, investing in, in developing countries, but I think we also have a responsibility to spend a lot of money finding new and better and greener forms of energy. So you know, I'm, a, I'm personally, again, not a policy guy, but I'm a, based on what I've read, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of governments, especially in the West, massively increasing their R&D budgets for um, especially green energy. Any policy people listening to a um, press sec, a former press sec and a former um, field organiser uh, is talking about this kind of stuff must be pulling their hair out. But, you know, we're giving it a stab and that's that's the important thing. <laughs> Climate uh, politics in Australia has been the third rail of Australian politics. We've not wanted to touch it. It's just been an absolute shit show since, um, you know, um, the Greens and Tony Abbott blew up the CPRS. How is it playing out in New Zealand? Yeah, it's, so it's really interesting. So... Um, we're again. We're really lucky in a way. It's it's never been as third rail, um, and in fact, actually, uh, Christopher Luxon, who's the new National Party leader, um, is already making sounds that he wants to to modernise his party on climate change, which is really encouraging. Um, I think all all parties but one here in New Zealand voted for our zero carbon act. Um, which which commits the country to to carbon budgets. You know, national the the conservative opposition did sign up to that. So, um, you know, I, in, in a way that I I could, certainly couldn't see the Liberals or the Nats over in um, in Australia doing. So so that's been really good. At the same time, though, you know, um, New Zealand's emissions profile, uh, we we had very high rates of renewable energy compared to the rest of the world, but per capita. We have really high agricultural emissions. You know, our our, um, our dairy industry is a huge source of, of economic security for us. It's a major export earner, um, and New Zealand is still figuring out how to grapple with that and how to solve 
um, how to solve that challenge. So our government, the Labor government, set up some really good um, uh, early plans to, to start to measure and, and hopefully reduce um, agricultural emissions. There's still a long way to go there, though. Um, and in terms of the politics of it, though, I think I, I'm, the significant majority of New Zealanders favour action on climate change, and a significant majority of swing voters do as well. And, and that's just simply not the case in Australia. Um, you know, uh, and, and I, um, I, having sat in focus groups for the Labor 2020 campaign, you know, people who had been national voters who we were trying to win over, they cared about climate change. Mm. You know, there was a, um, a reason that uh, um, the Lake Onslow project, which is a, a significant um, green energy infrastructure project uh, that, that our government is pursuing, there was a reason that was a manifesto commitment because you know the party that was going to do the most to tackle climate change was um was doing themselves real favors politically um i, I in one sense we're, we're very lucky that that's where public opinion here in new zealand is compared to compared to your lovely country so the takeaway is we need to stop uh, digging up brown coal but you need to get your cows to stop farting is probably the best way to describe well, it well in in both of those as i said i'm i'm quite in favor of um of significant r&d because there are actually there are actually things you can you can do in the r&d space about agricultural emissions i've seen some really exciting stuff about um different types of seaweed if used as um as as feed can reduce the um relative emissions intensity of cow emissions so yeah uh yeah, you, you don't want to be a techno-futurist about these things. Like, you don't want to assume that there's technological fixes for a lot of these. Some, sometimes there are, we are just going to have to, to you know, to, um, build build more wind farms, et cetera. But at the same time, I think we've, in the West where we've, we've been, you know, we've built our abundance on fossil fuels, I think we owe it to the world to spend some of that abundance on figuring out how we can lift people out of, po- um, out of poverty globally and how we can produce food globally w- without just pumping more and more carbon into the atmosphere. Here, here. Let's get on a flight now and go back across the Atlantic. I've planned this holiday very badly. I don't know why <laughs> I uh, did that. Anyway, we're going to leave Glasgow and head uh, back to North America, though. But let's go to Canada. They had elections, federal elections that were held in September this year. Uh, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, from the Liberals, went early. Uh, what were his uh, strategic intentions in doing that and did it pay off? Yeah, so look, this this was a pretty classic case of, of the dangers of an early election, right? So Trudeau was polling very highly off the back of the COVID response. He's been in a minority government with the Canadian New Democrats, and he pretty transparently saw an opportunity to strengthen his hand and to turn that into a majority government. Um, and and he, he made his announcements and, and his polling plummeted you know, Canadians didn't f- feel the need for another election. They thought that things were trucking along pretty well, and they a lot of um, the polling that I've seen suggests that people saw this as pretty transparently self-interested. Um, and in a pandemic, I think they, they wanted their government to be nose to the grindstone back to work mm. instead of out there chasing votes. And so the the outcome is that Trudeau didn't get the majority that he wanted. I think actually the NDP might have picked up just a couple of seats, but broadly most uh, parties returned with, you know, not that much more or that many less seats than they had beforehand. So I, I saw one Canadian commentator called it the go back to work election. <laughs> so um, I think if you look at, you look around the English sphere, you know, Theresa May went for a majority with an early election in 2017. It really didn't work. Um, and it, it just goes to, goes to show that, you know, when voters send you to work, they, they don't like to see you um, coming back to them before they, uh, unless they think you've got a really good reason that they, they, they want you to, to go and do the things you'd said you'd do and not come back for more. I just wish we had fixed terms across the board, certainly here in Australia. We do it mostly at a state level. Most of our states have fixed terms. Uh, a couple don't, but obviously federally it's, it requires a change in the constitution. But it just four-year fixed terms in federally would be so much better. It's just so we can actually just – because I just don't think this ever works. I think strategically it's just got so many pitfalls that you've just pointed out. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting here in New Zealand, so it, it's becoming a norm. So we have, you know, prime ministers can call within a, within a period of time. Um, but uh, Sir John Key actually started at the start of every election year, you know, the first press conference or, or, or the second or very early on, he would say the election date is this date in September or October. 
And even though constitutionally he didn't have to do that, um, you know, he was pretty widely praised for that because it is it, it gives people certainty. It, yeah. it shows, you know, it, it lets people plan it, and it, it shows that he's, you're not going to gain the system for advantage. And and that's something that Jacinda Ardern continued in in 2020. She came out at the start of last year and said when the election was. It ended up having to be delayed because of COVID, but, but these things happen. Um, and, and it's something that I expect she'll do again. So I think I think voters really appreciate their leaders kind of acting like adults on that stuff. For our listeners that may not be familiar too much with Canadian politics, um, but we have two notionally centre-left political parties. I don't know if you could attribute the word dem- social democratic to the Liberals perhaps, or maybe that's a, a debate we can have or... Um, but certainly, both of those, the the Liberals and the uh, the New Democrats, are both um, affiliated to International Progress, which is the national, the international centre left political body that the Labor Party in New Zealand and Australia and Britain and Israel and everyone else is all affiliated to. What's the difference between these two parties, and why don't they get along? Yeah, so so the New Democrats are a, a socially democratic in the in the classic sense. I think the Liberals are um, again kind of more liberals in the classic sense. I think that that almost be closer to the Liberal Democrats. I think in in the UK, um, whereas the the um, you know the NDP really are socially democratic. You know, um, very strong links to Canada's trade union movement. That's really the the political tradition that they they come out of. And when I've met with, the, it's funny when I've gone to international conferences and there's been the Liberals, someone from the Liberals will be over as well as someone from the um, NDP and you kind of, you know, you, you want to you know, want to be a bit of a social butterfly and meet people and, you know, nerd out on stuff. I always find it bad when I get caught talking to both of them within about, it's like a five minute time frame. It feels like I'm cheating on someone. Um, but certainly the NDP, but interestingly enough, yes, you're right, they, they are from the trade union movement in Canada, but they also have incredibly strong ties into the agricultural community as well, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, there's parts in parts of Canada. I think the NDP has come almost out of a um, a kind of farmers' justice, you know, um, so social justice farmer movement. In the way that, like the the turn of the century progressives in the US, you know, there was a lot of the um, I'm blanking on the the guy's name, but uh, Brian, Brian, one of those. That, so, so there, there is there is a, a tradition in North America of, of very left wing agricultural communities. Interesting. Anyway, we could nerd out about this for hours, but we probably should pe- <laughs> let people get back to their their day jobs. Um, now, last question, um, which is uh, we have awards here at the at Social Democratic, and uh, we last week we had um, uh, Josh Burns and uh, Annika Wells on to give their uh, Social Democrat of the Year in Australia. But I'm interested to hear your who you'd want to attribute the award to International Social Democrat of the Year. Who's impressed you the most in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very tempted to say Jacinda Ardern, but you're going to kick me <laughs> off if I do that. So, um, I, legitimately, I think Olaf Scholz in Germany, the new German Chancellor, who's just taken office this week. You know. If you look back two, three years ago, there were real questions as to whether the SDP in Germany had a political future, mm. and they've they've come around very well. Um, and you know, I think his his personal style has been a big part of that. He's someone who I think does a very good job at as I, as I talked about before at reassuring maybe kind of nervous um, middle ground voters while still getting um, getting his base really fired up. Um, and, and look, you know, Stephen, you and I have I think talked about this in 2016 when you came, came over. There was a there was a long period of time where it looked it looked pretty bleak for social democrats around the world. Um, and I think actually, you know, the experience of COVID in particular, I think, has reminded a lot of voters around the world that there is a really important role for an active state, mm. one that that um, finds that you know um, a, a way to both temper the worst impulses of capitalism, but that also you know, submits the state to proper democratic oversight so that there's, you know, there's good government and clean government and competent government. And I think that if you look at, at um, what Schultz has done, he's, he's done a really good job of being a champion for that kind of vision. And I think if you if you look around the world, it's actually now conservative parties who are struggling with what does a post-COVID conservative approach look like? Look like. Um, so, you know, it's it's a really exciting time to, to see wins like that. And I think he's a good standard bearer for that approach. So he'd get the award from me. Here, here. Wonderful. 
Hayden, mate, it uh, was wonderful to speak with you today. Um, we um, wish you and uh, your family and actually the wider Labor family over in New Zealand um, a safe and happy uh, festive period uh, and a successful 2022. Uh, and we thank you for your time on the show today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.